0: We've been so busy uh, with just our regular routines that we haven't had time to be able to, to try to figure it out. And I think we're going to be able to figure it out in these days ahead. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, you can grab that. The, the scriptures are going to be on the screen behind me as well. But uh, we're, as I said last week, we started this series called Trust the Story. And uh, if you notice the timeline that is behind me, that is the big God story that our, our kids and True Fire kids use as part of their curriculum. And they look at a different element each week of this timeline, this story that God has told. And I, I felt like I should use that as the background for this series because um, what I think that the Bible is, the Bible is a narrative. It's a story that God is is telling us as people, and he's inviting us to be a part of that. So as we read through the Old Testament and as we read through some of the things, I'm going to be sharing some thoughts on that, those devotions um, on the YouVersion app, and uh, I have been sharing them. I'm going to share some more, but one of the scriptures that we looked at specifically last week was 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul writing to Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed, And it's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And you have to remember, now when Timothy's reading this, for him that word scripture is... Um, Genesis through Malachi. This is the only type of scripture that's available to him. And not even all of those books would have been available to him at that time. And so we have to make sure that when we're reading the Bible, that we put ourselves into the context that it is, so we understand it. Now, we have the benefit of the New Testament and all that the, the writers, like the letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, that that verse comes from, We have that as well, but we have to be able to read the New Testament as a part of God's whole story that he's told from beginning to end. And last week, I shared some slides with you to talk about the difference between Eastern thought and Western thought, and those are available on Facebook if you want to look back over them. Um, It might help you put into context some of the things that we're going to say today that maybe you don't understand. And a lot, and all of that podcast, or all of those slides, came from a podcast known as the Bema Podcast, and I put the link to that on last week's Facebook page as well. And so that is there for you if you want to go to that. And I wanted to make sure to give credit to them because I didn't put that together, um, but I thought it was so well put together that I wanted to share it with you. And so today, we're going to begin to look at, and I'm going to try not to move on the seat. Today, we're going to try to look at the beginning of this story. And I showed this slide to you last week, and I'm going to put it up again. Uh, Hopefully, it's a little easier for you to read this week. But Genesis chapter 1 through 11 is what we would really call the preface of God's story. And we're going to look at this in more detail here in just a few moments. But in essence, in these chapters, what God is saying is that creation that he has made is good. And he's inviting us to trust the story that he is about to tell or that he's telling. And then in Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50, he introduces us to this family who has learned to trust the story. And as we read about them, we realize they're not perfect. They make a lot of mistakes. They've got some warts in their life just like you and I do. But God invites them to be a part of his story. And they start to learn how to trust God throughout that story. And then starting in Exodus all the way through the book of Revelation, is what I believe is the narrative of God's story. And we could actually refer to this narrative as a tale of two kingdoms. There's the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of God. Um, some other words, maybe instead of the kingdoms of this world, there's the kingdoms of empire. And what empire relies on, empire relies on force, it relies on coercion, it relies on fear. But the kingdom of God, or what the Hebrews would say, the kingdom of shalom, is a kingdom of peace. It's a kingdom of trust. It's a kingdom of invitation. And as we look at a scripture from Deuteronomy chapter 8, maybe you've heard this scripture before, but God is talking to the Israelites in the wilderness in Exodus. Um, as they're traveling through. And now in Deuteronomy, um, Moses is kind of recapping what's happened over these last 40 years. And in Deuteronomy chapter eight, he says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, I don't know what you hear when you read that, but the the idea of humbling doesn't mean to press you down or to make you um, cower in fear, but to humble means to totally rely on him. Now, you and I as Christians, if you're a believer, you probably say that you trust in God. I say I trust in God, but I sometimes find in my daily life, I'm acting in a way that shows I really don't trust in him. And so what's happening here is God is trying to show them um, when he comes to test us, we think in terms, when we read tests, we think in terms of passing and failing. And that's not what the, the Hebrews would understand a test. So for them to test isn't to pass or fail. It's for God to know what is in our hearts. Now you might be like, well, doesn't God already know what's in our hearts? Well, He knows cerebrally, he knows the facts of what's in our heart, but that word know that's in the Bible here and is in the Bible in the New Testament where Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ. He doesn't mean I want you to have a a head knowledge about the love of Christ. He says, I want you to experience the love of Christ. So when God says, I want to know what's in your hearts, he knows factually what's in our hearts, but until it comes out of our hearts through maybe a lack of trust or a lack of fear of God, then he doesn't get to experience it with us. And for the Hebrew, that word know, the word yada is to experience. So when God says, I want to know what's in your hearts, he's saying, I want to experience with you what is in your hearts. And so the, the time in the desert, that wilderness time with the Israelites, he's coming to know what is in their hearts. So when we read test. In the Bible, whether Old Testament or New Testament, we need to understand that these tests are an opportunity to show God what is in our hearts. It's an opportunity for us to learn a lesson from God, because if what's in our hearts, if what's coming out of our mouths, if we're hoarding toilet paper right now in this moment, are we trusting God? And we're experiencing, and it's an opportunity for us to pivot, to to repent, or to turn, that's what repent means, it's just to turn to what we really want to believe, or what we really want to be in our hearts. And so, we're going to go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at the beginning of this story. There are four points that I want to share with you today, and if I don't have time to to dive into each one uh, in-depthly, um, maybe I'll just give you the point, but the first one that I think um, God is calling us into, he's calling us to trust the story. He's calling us to trust the story. He has told a story, or he's telling a story that starts in Genesis chapter 1, and he's calling us to trust it. I'm going to switch microphones just to get rid of that static. And so in Genesis chapter one, God's introducing us to his story and he's calling us to trust him. Now, I don't know what you think about Genesis chapter one or the creation story. But in the assemblies of God, we believe this could be an actual figurative um, story, that it's not an actual um, detailed account of what happened on each day of creation as a 24 hour period. That's possible, but more than likely, if you if you look at the context of Moses, the Hebrew mentality, the poetic nature of Genesis chapters one through three, uh, I think that you'll find that maybe this is a little bit more of a narrative that's telling us a story or trying to illustrate some truth to us. So I want to go to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. It says, "In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth." Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now what I want you to notice is that the heavens and the earth are created formless and void. That somehow the Spirit of God is already hovering over waters, that were already created. So we don't know how long this is happening. We don't know how long this is there, but we're introduced to God in this passage in Genesis chapter one. And what I want you to know is when we read this word God in the scripture, sometimes it's the word Yahweh, which is like the the name of God that he introduces himself to, to the Israelites in the book of Exodus. And it's a Uh, A name of a creator personal God, unlike any other God that existed on the earth at that time. But this word in Genesis chapter 1 is actually the word Elohim. And the word Elohim is more, uh, it's also used as for false gods in the scripture. And so you have to look at the context to see if it's referring to our God Jehovah, or if it's referring to a, a little g or one of the gods or powers or force that's here on the earth. And so we really have to know the context. But it's also a plural word. And so it's interesting that this God that we're being introduced to is plural. But as Pastor Mark illustrated in his prayer today, we know him as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But he is one God. He's not three gods, he's not three separate gods. He's one God that somehow exists as three distinct parts Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see here that. One of them is the Spirit of God that's hovering over the waters. We're introduced to God himself. And then God speaks. And if we go to John chapter 1 in the New Testament, John chapter 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So as God is speaking in Genesis chapter 1, John chapter 1 tells us that this spoken word is also God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. So right here, we know this is Jesus. We know that in Genesis chapter one, the word of God that exists in that verse is Jesus being illustrated to us here. And so if we go to Deuteronomy chapter six, when the Israelites again are traveling through the wilderness, they've got a fuller revelation of who this God is. But God wants them to understand that even though he is father and word and spirit or father, son, and spirit, he is one God. And in Deuteronomy chapter six, this is what the Jews, the Hebrews would have repeated daily as a prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's one God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And so right here at the beginning of this story in Genesis chapter 1, we're being invited into this story. And we're not going to go through the account of creation all of the days. We're going to talk right now about mankind being created later in Genesis chapter 1. But I'd encourage you again, if you want to read the full account or hear the full account, uh, the Bama podcast, you're going to get tired of hearing me say that over the next few weeks, is a great resource to take you through the Genesis account of creation and help you understand the poetic nature of that and what's happening in all of those, those different verses. But in Genesis chapter one, now we see man being created. And here we have God saying, let us, there's that God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, roll over the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. And so right here we get a picture of mankind being created in God's image, male and female. And I believe God created us as male and female to be an us because God, God is an us. He is right here, let us. And so there's no way when Adam is created that he can fully display the glory of God as a a single being. There needs to be an us for them, for all of creation to see this God who is also an us. And he made them male and female. And then he gave them an assignment. Their assignment was to be fruitful and multiply. Multiply. And that's going to be repeated throughout Genesis chapter 1 and 1 through 11. Over and over, be fruitful and multiply, be fruitful and multiply. That's their commission to make other humans to populate the earth. Then also, it's to fill the earth and subdue it or govern it, to rule over it. All of the animals, all of nature, they are to be God's representatives here on the earth, acting in his behalf for all creation. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, we kind of get a close-up of this account. And so God zooms in, or Moses, as he's writing this, zooms in for us to read. And in Genesis 2.18, the Lord God says, after he created Adam, it is not good, the first time God says it's not good, for man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they will become one flesh. So they're an us in the image of God. Somehow they become one flesh in the image of God, and yet they're an us. And if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing later to the Ephesians church, says... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So if you're sitting there today and you're like, well, I'm a single person, so I'm not a one flesh with someone. That's why when God instituted the church and as Pastor Mark talked about unity and that we would be one, this is essential because this is what demonstrates who God is. So even though we have separate physical bodies. Somehow, some profound way, when we come together as a body of believers with Christ as our Lord, we become one flesh that displays the glory of God to a watching world. We become one. That's why when Jesus said, when they see that we are one, they're going to know that he came from the Father. And so when the church is divided, when the church is arguing, when the church is fighting and devouring and and biting and devouring each other the way Paul says in Galatians, we're not demonstrating who God is. Now, also here in Genesis chapter 2, we sometimes look at... um, You know, Adam and Eve created as male and female, and Eve was created as a helper to Adam. Now, as a Westerner, when we read that, we think helper, we think Adam is the top guy and Eve is the bottom person. She's the helper. She's like second in nature. But I don't believe the Hebrews would have read that. I don't believe the way that it's worded in the the Hebrew text Ever implies that there's a hierarchy of this person over this person. And I believe as we go through the rest of the story, we're going to see that that plays out later on. Let me show you one passage from Psalm chapter 54. This same word for helper is used in Psalm 54.4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. So in the same way that Eve was Adam's helper, God is our helper. And so I believe that word helper doesn't mean what we necessarily think it means sometimes in our Western mindset. So we're going to look into that a little bit deeper as we go through the story. And here's the thing. Um, If you want to be an Eastern thinker, When you find something in the scripture that you don't understand, it's okay to question it. It's okay to be like, hmm, that doesn't make sense. I need to find out what that means. As Westerners, we don't even do that. We read the text and we're like, well, I don't know how that works, but, you know, he's God, so who knows. God has hidden things in his word for us to draw out. And if we will look at what is there in the Hebrew text, in the Greek text, if we do a little bit of study, we're going to find things that have been there all along for us to know and understand, and they're going to show themselves true throughout the rest of the story. So God wants us, he's inviting us to know the story and to trust the story. The second thing is he's inviting us to know when to say when to exercise self-control. This is, when God creates Adam and Eve and he puts them in the garden, one of their responsibilities is to know when to say when. And we see that in Genesis chapter 2, when God creates the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, God rested. He finished his work that he had been doing, and he rested from all of his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Now, do you think that God got to this point in creation and he's like, hmm, I don't know if there's anything else I could create. I mean, I don't know if there's any I mean, I'm all tapped out. Do you think that God exhausted the possibilities? I don't believe that. I think God is limited. But if you if you think of an artist, when an artist is doing a painting or maybe making a sculpture, that artist gets to a point where if they do more, they'll ruin it. In fact, we have that phrase in our English language when someone's like maybe sharing something or or speaking and we're like, "Uh, I need to stop or I'll ruin it. Or maybe you're experiencing this really cool moment, maybe with a loved one or a friend, and you're like, don't talk, you'll ruin it. I mean, you get to a point where if you add something You actually start to ruin creation. And God is so perfect that he knew when to say when, when to say enough. And he rested, not because he was tired and needed rest, but to help us. And so this idea of Sabbath, when we rest from our work, we learn how to know when to say enough is enough. And so what God did is he, he put a tree in the Garden of Eden, if you remember, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And God is not saying that Adam and Eve don't have a knowledge of good and evil at all. They do because they knew that it was wrong to eat from the tree. They knew that before they ate the tree. So they, they have a knowledge of good and evil. But what the test is, is will they know when to say enough? Or are they going to be tempted to eat the tree and say, no, I want more and in essence, ruin it. And so God put the tree in the garden because he needed to know what was in their hearts. He needed to experience it with them now. Here's the nice thing. God already knew that they were going to do this. And so before the foundation of the world, Jesus was crucified. His plan of salvation, his story is still intact. It's okay. He's not up there wringing his hands, wondering what to do next. But he still needs to experience it with Adam and Eve, yada, to know what's in their hearts. And we know the story. We know that they ate of the tree and they wanted more. Now, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus tells us about the Sabbath. And he says to the people, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Because the Jews had made all these rules about what you should do and not do on the Sabbath. And they they were kind of ruining the Sabbath. The point of the Sabbath is for you and I to stop and to make sure that we trust God as our provider. Do I need to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week to make sure that I have enough food, to make sure I have enough stuff, or do I trust that I can do a, a work day? that at the end of the day, I can rest from my work, that on the Sabbath day, I can rest from my work. And so the Sabbath is a time to maybe step back and make sure that we're really putting our trust in God, to experience God as our provider. It's one thing to say up here, yeah, God's my provider. It's a whole other thing. When it doesn't look like I should take a day off, i I. I really have too much to do, or I'm not going to have enough money to pay my bills. I, I, need, I don't have time to Sabbath. Then we begin to experience what's in our hearts. And so we need to make sure that we learn this concept of Sabbath, and that's why God instituted it, so that you and I would learn to know how to say enough, when to say when, and that's something that we're going to see repeated. In fact, we see it at the Tower of Babel just a few chapters later in the book of Genesis. The problem with the Tower of Babel wasn't that they were building this huge skyscraper, but they were, they were trying to make a name for themselves beyond what is enough. They were not learning how to say enough is enough. And I think that's a thing that we're going to see repeated all throughout the scripture. The third thing that God invites us to know in the story, is how to lay down our lives for others. This is a part of the character of God. God isn't thinking of himself first. He's, he puts others first. And so, sometimes when we look at the Godhead, and we're like, how can three parts exist without, you know, like, um, without like a form of hierarchy? I mean, there has to be some level of like, you're, you're the big boss, or you're the little boss. But when when you are a perfect God, and it's kind of hard for our our human minds to maybe wrap ourselves all the way around this, but when you're a perfect God and you prefer others over yourself, there's really no problem with hierarchy because there's this communal sense of oneness that in all of the decisions that are being made. And Jesus, I know, willingly submitted to the Father, and I know that the Spirit Willingly points to Jesus, um, but I don't know that that necessarily makes God the Father like the chief boss the way that we in our Western world like to think of it. And we're gonna, again, we're gonna spend the rest of the year talking about this. So if I'm saying something today and you're like, whoa, Uh, You're going to have to tune in all year, and you're going to have to read the Bible with us, and we're going to have to to question each other and maybe push back a little bit the way that that a good Jewish Eastern thinker would do. And uh, just don't push too hard, because you might be bigger than me, and I don't want to get injured. But um, I don't mean literal push, but anyway. So when we're to represent God on the earth, we are to represent him in this same concept of laying down our lives for others, putting others first. And the first thing we see after the fall of Adam and Eve is this struggle for control. You remember God said to Eve, you know, your husband's going to rule over you and your desire is going to be to rule over him. We see right away because of shame, because of fear, because of guilt that has now been thrust upon mankind, we see this tension. We even see it between Cain and Abel. Remember, Cain kills his brother Abel and we see this tension already in the first uh, siblings that were created on the earth. But when we come to Abraham, I believe God chose Abraham because of Abraham's character. I don't think God just chose Abraham because, you know, he just randomly selected a guy on earth and said, yep, I'm going to choose that one. I believe that we see a picture of Abraham's character. Uh, We see it in the genealogy, and I don't have time to go through it, but in Genesis chapter 11, we see Abraham, I believe, choosing Sarah as his wife, knowing that she's barren. Okay, so him and his brother are choosing sisters as a, 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 a bride because their father died. And so, again, we see this character of their father died. Who's going to take care of them? We're going to choose them as our wives. We're going to bring them in. And Abraham, as the firstborn, chooses first, and he picks the barren one. Now, if you know anything about the Hebrew culture, if you have a barren wife, you've got no heritage, no lineage, no line. And that's the kind of guy that I think God looks at and says, I want him. He puts others first, and that's the kind of person I can work through. Now, believe me, Abraham is flawed, and you're going to see his flaws as you read the story, but he learns to to experience God, to know what's in his own heart, and for God to know what's in his heart, and as he walks him through the story that we see from Genesis 12 all the way through Genesis 50, he's going to learn how to trust in God. One of the things that I think we sometimes gloss over is this idea of the firstborn in the Old Testament, because we think, well, the firstborn was the one that God was going to choose to bring his line through, or the firstborn had a birthright, and so the firstborn got a double portion of the father's estate, and the firstborn was responsible for the family. But what's interesting in the family of Abraham that we see from Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis chapter 50, the firstborn isn't really chosen. I mean, Abraham has Isaac, but Isaac isn't the firstborn. Ishmael was the firstborn. Now, Isaac was the firstborn through Sarah, I'll give you that. But what about Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau? Jacob wasn't the firstborn. What about Jacob's sons? The line continues through Joseph, and Joseph wasn't the firstborn. And then the line continues, David wasn't his firstborn. Solomon wasn't the firstborn. So the lineage of Jesus, even though there's this heavy emphasis on the firstborn and the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities, I think God chooses The child that is going to live up to the responsibilities of the firstborn. And that, I think, ties into the New Testament and us as the the firstborn children of God coming into the kingdom and living in that same firstborn mentality. Now, I know Jesus was the firstborn among many brothers, but you and I are called to that same privilege and to that same responsibility of living out the calling of the firstborn to provide for and Protect the family, and I think that God sees that in Abraham, He sees that in Isaac, He sees it in Jacob. If you remember in the New Testament, we're told that Esau didn't honor his birthright, Esau didn't count it a privilege to be the firstborn son. And so as a result of that, God chooses Jacob to continue the line through because of that. And so this concept continues in the New Testament all the way through in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. This is something that is in the character and the nature of God from the very beginning. This is something that we're going to see as we read through the Old Testament, and even as, again, we read through the New Testament. God commands his people to look after the the, the widows, the orphans, the crippled, the poor, the lame, the 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 marginalized, the foreigner among them. And there are so many laws that are set up. This is something that God repeats over and over again. Put others first. Consider yourselves the same as Christ who put others first. Lay down our lives for others. And so it's going to be repeated over and over again throughout the story. And we're going to see it. Now, the last one that I want to share with you today. So we're called to trust the story know when to say when, be willing to lay down our lives for others, and this one is to be the message. Be the message. See, God doesn't want orators who go around proclaiming the message. He wants a people who live out the message. I think of in the New Testament when, you know, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. You're not gonna go witness with your mouth, you're gonna be my witness. Now that might be with your mouth, but it also will be with your hands. It'll be with your actions. It'll be how you live out your life. And right now, we are living in a moment where all eyes are on the church. And it's time for the church to be this message, to be willing to lay down our lives for others, to be willing to sacrifice, to not fear in the face of everything that's happening to us. So this idea of being the message is so important for us. Um, Even in the story in Exodus, if you go to Exodus chapter 7, when God calls Moses to go back into Egypt and to go to Pharaoh. Look at what he says to him in chapter 7. See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, first of all, there again, God is in us, and so he sends Moses. I know it looks like in the text that, you know, God's really giving in to Moses and sending Aaron along, but he's sending him as an us, and he's sending him to not just proclaim a message to Pharaoh, but to be the message to Pharaoh, and so there's so much that's hidden for us in the scripture that I think God is going to draw out to us as we read through it. Uh, We've put together a reading plan. That starts this week um, with our. It's actually already started with our U-version Bible reading plans. Uh, we're going to continue through the Old Testament, reading parts of that this week. But then starting next week, we're going to start reading the Gospel of Luke together. Also, the book, The Untold Story. If you haven't picked up a copy of that, they're available here at the church. I want to encourage you to stop and pick up a copy of that. We're going to read the first chapter, the prologue, and the introduction of that this week. Because it talks about this story, the history, the Old Testament. And it's going to prepare us for what's coming. And then over the next couple weeks, when we read through the Gospel of Luke together, leading up to Easter, to Resurrection Sunday we're also going to be reading a couple chapters from the Untold Story. Then for the rest of this year, all the way through December, we're going to be reading through the Untold Story to get the background, the history. We're going to be reading through the the book of Acts to look at the early church and how this fits in. And we're going to look at all of the letters that were written in the New Testament. We're going to be reading them together. We're going to be Um, having messages on them on Sunday. We're going to be reading them together and interacting with each other throughout the week. And uh, I believe God's going to help us to understand this story that he tells all the way from Exodus, Genesis, all the way through Revelation. We're going to come to a greater understanding because what we have to understand is the early church many of them were Hebrews, at least the beginning of them. And they understand the Old Testament scriptures in a way that many times you and I don't understand. So even though we haven't spent a lot of time on the Old Testament, we're going to finish up our sermon series on the Old Testament next Sunday. But we're we're going to keep coming back to this because there are going to be passages of scripture that we see in the new Testament that point back to the old Testament and give us a greater understanding. And so I want to challenge you as you go through this week. To kind of begin to question some of the things that you're reading in the Old Testament. Begin to go back through some of the things I shared with you today. Uh, If you've got some time and you can check out the Bama podcast, there's some great resources on there. If you're looking for books to read, I'm reading an amazing book right now on the Exodus and learning to read the, the, the Exodus story from a Hebrew mindset, knowing that when The scripture says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. There's actually two different Hebrew words for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And without knowing which word is being used in our English translations, we're missing something in the story. And so I've been reading through that book. If you have Kindle Unlimited, it's a free book, and you'd be able to read it, really short chapters. And uh, I've been excited as I've been reading through this, these things and listening to these podcasts over the last two years. I've been trying to study the Old Testament in preparation for this. And uh, I know that I've put a lot of information on you today. And maybe you're sitting there like, I don't even know where to begin. But let me just remind you, live what you know. Live what you know. A few weeks ago, I told you from from Peter's letter to the church. It's not, we're not throwing out everything we've already learned. We're adding to our faith. And so live what you know, live it out. When you experience things that are coming out of your heart this week, don't be afraid to say, God, I don't like those things. I don't want those things as a part of my life. And really come to a place of repentance, of humility before God, and then let him teach you some things about who he is. He wants you. experience his love. He wants you to experience his peace. He wants you to experience his provision. And I'm going to pray that over us as we go through these weeks ahead. I want to encourage you as we do Zoom calls, Zoom in with us. If you want to to have a, a conversation with me and ask some questions, call me. I mean, I've got nothing but time right now to talk on the phone, to maybe meet with you and sit six feet apart uh, in a park somewhere so that we can have conversations about what God's doing. Do it with one another. Call each other on the phone. uh, Process these things together. And who knows what God is going to do in our lives out of what seems like an interruption in our lives. I guarantee it's not an interruption to the Lord. It's totally a part of what he's been planning all along because he's been ready to use this, this moment to, to build his kingdom in our lives and in our community and in our world. So let's pray together. Father, I just thank you today for the story that you have given to us and that you have invited us to be a part of. God, I just thank you for the privilege of partnering with you to be your representative here on this earth. I'm praying for everyone right now, God, who's watching this message today. I pray for just a greater level of hunger in every one of our hearts to really know your word. God, to know you, to experience your word in our daily lives, to experience you in our daily lives. Holy Spirit, I pray that as we read through this Genesis account, as we read through the Exodus, as we read through Old Testament prophet passages this week, that you just open our eyes, help us to notice things, to slow down and notice things that maybe we wouldn't have noticed before, to begin to question, hey, what does that mean? What's that word mean? God, not to be afraid to even humble ourselves before one another and begin to have conversations that that just continue to deepen our understanding of who you are. Holy Spirit, I pray peace over every family right now. God, I pray that your peace would flood every heart. (coughs) God, for anyone right now who's anxious, who's maybe afraid, God, who's maybe worried about what's going to take place, God, I pray for every uh, condemning thought, every shameful thought, every fearful thought to be just extinguished right now by the, the spirit of peace. God, that your spirit would flood every home that's listening right now. God, that you would maintain that peace. Help us to maintain it in our hearts. God, not to allow the news, not to allow the reports, not to allow anything that happens in this week ahead to shake that peace in our hearts. Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd give grace to every one of us to begin to understand your word. God, I pray that there would not be discouragement in our hearts today, that we would not think that we're not educated enough to to understand things, or uh, we don't have the right personality to understand these things. But Holy Spirit, that you'd give us grace to begin to understand your word like never before. And so, Holy Spirit, I just ask for you to minister to every single one of our families, wherever they are today, you would begin to minister to them. I pray for pastors again, God, all around this nation, God, that you'd raise them up for this such a time as this season to lead their, their bodies, God, to lead your body into whatever it is that the future holds for us. God, I pray that you'd give creativity and give... God, give grace to be able to connect even when we can't physically be present with one another. God, I pray for healing today, for anyone who has been affected by the the COVID-19 virus, God, that you would bring healing to their physical bodies. I pray for Greg Mundus. I pray for Ron Maddox. God, I pray for any uh, member of our our body that's been affected or any member of their family that has been affected. God, we pray for healing of uh, lungs. We pray for function of kidneys. God, for every organ in every physical body to function as it should. And God, we pray for this virus to just cease. God, as quickly as it began, that it would just stop. God, that there would be no more spread, that there would be no community spread. God, that you would bring a a calming peace to to this nation. God, to the heart of our president, to the heart of our senators and our congressmen. God, to the heart of our governors. God, that you would bring a calming peace, that you'd give them wisdom to lead this nation. God, to lead our world in this time. And so we thank you for the ways that you've revealed yourself, and we pray that you'd continue to help us to see how you're revealing yourself even in this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being with us, and uh, at least uh, online, and we hope to see you again real soon. God bless you.